This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department is now offering two online courses that provide support and guidance for those affected by suicide. The courses cover things such as communication techniques, ways to connect or stay connected to a support system, and reminders for how to maintain physical and mental health during a very difficult time. To learn more about them, I spoke with Dr. Andrew Moon, Acting Director for Research, Evaluation, and Data-slash-Surveillance for the Defense Suicide Prevention Office, along with Lisa Valentine, who you'll hear from first. She's the Program Manager for Casualty, Mortuary Affairs, and Military Funeral Honors for the Defense Department. So we have two courses And one is a course that we, it's the first one that we made, it's called After a Suicide. And this was developed to get the message out that postvention is suicide prevention. And so what we're saying is that it's, it's very important that we get the word out that if you've been exposed or affected by a suicide, that you too are at risk. And that what we want to teach everyone is how to recognize what you may be going through and what assistance is out there and how to self-care. Because what we don't want to do is to have someone who's been affected by a suicide who then become a victim of suicide themselves. We started this course uh, by gathering, uh, having a working group of experts. And so we pulled them from uh, the service casualty offices who work with survivors every day and also with the defense Suicide Prevention Office, whose goal is to prevent suicide from ever occurring. And then we also work with people at Analytics and the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, who's a nonprofit organization, and they work hand-in-hand with our survivors of suicide. And Dr. Moon, what, what do you see as this course providing for folks who are affected by a suicide, whether it be a family or friend? Yeah, that's a great question. I will take just one step back. We use the term postvention, and and that's not a term a lot of people are aware of uh, if you don't kind of live in the suicide prevention world. Um, So postvention really is any sort of intervention we can do on behalf of and for someone who has experienced loss due to a suicide. So that may be the offering of services, supports, et cetera. And so the the biggest goal of, of these two courses is to make sure that we are getting those those services to the people who need. So the first course is really focused on family members, friends, community members who have experienced uh, a loss of a suicide loss by suicide and um, what they may be going through, uh, how they may be impacted. We almost think of this as something that you're you're never going to be prepared for, and you may need some extra skills, some extra ways of, of figuring out how how to cope with something that that you've never really been prepared for. And the second course is, is really integral because it, it helps people who are in the role of support. So whether that is a casualty assistance officer or a chaplain, really helps them understand what it can be like to sit with someone who's experienced this loss, um, try to give them a good understanding of what that person might be going through, how they've been impacted, and what their needs might be. Also, with the added layer of even the service provider who is interacting with this family member or this community can also be impacted. So a good portion of the course focuses on how we can support service service providers and how they can support themselves. Yeah, we can start with you on this one, Dr. Moon. What sort of support in your experience have you seen that uh, victims who are affected by a suicide in their life what kind of support do they need at that time, like you said, that you're not really prepared for? And then, Lisa, I'd like to also get your insight as well after he's done. 
store. Yet there, uh, to be transparent, there's no right or wrong way of, of grieving and, and death by suicide is is really complicated. So I will be transparent and say there isn't going to be one thing that everyone needs. Um, there's going to be a myriad of things that someone needs. And um, for some, it, it could be help just getting back on a day-to-day routine and helping their family find some sort of um, path forward through through the grief. Um, some people uh, want to strive to find to make meaning uh, of of the loss and and seek out ways that they could help other survivors or help people who are struggling with suicidal ideation or, or crisis concerns. Other others really um, need to spend time with their their spiritual leaders, with their confidants, with their with their family to find comfort and connection. Um, connection is key in, in in managing so many things for us. And 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 there are a few that actually need to go the route of finding some professional support, whether that's through a counselor or again through a spiritual advisor. So there are a myriad of things people could need. And I think what the course is really aimed to to show and to talk about is that is that there is that complexity, is that not everyone is going to need the same thing. And so we can't approach them all with the same rote kind of here's what you're going to need and here are the resources. Lisa, how will these courses fit into what Andrew was just describing in in terms of supporting people affected by a suicide? Well, our courses, they provide different ideas, and it kind of gives you a menu of choices of what you can pick from that can best help you. And you may want to pick from all of them, Um, you know, from choosing not to be alone. There's there's always someone out there, and we have resources out there where we can connect uh, people to so that they don't have to be alone. And um, finding that someone to talk to who will just listen. And uh, we even have experts or people that have gone through this and, um, and they understand. And uh, sometimes it's, you've got to tell your story and maybe you've got to tell your story more than once just to work through it. Uh, because there's a, a lot of complexities that come with surviving a suicide death. And, and maybe it's also taking care of your, your body physically as well as spiritually. And so our course provides different ideas to help yourself. Yeah, I'm curious, Lisa, um, you know, as your role as the program manager for Casualty Mortuary Affairs, Military Funeral Honors, how much of your time is spent in, you know, dealing with the aftermath of tragedies that are unique like a suicide? Um, And what you can just tell me a little bit about your role, because, you know, that's got to be a tough job to have. And, and, you know, just your your title alone uh, just, you know, kind of brings up a lot of feelings in people. Absolutely. Well, it takes a village to help a, a survivor who's lost a loved one to suicide. And um, and keep in mind, when one person dies, it affects about 135 people by average. And it even includes people that may not have even known the victim. But it's very important to recognize that in ourselves. And so as a program manager, I mean, we have a lot of family members. And I just told you, just one person is 135. So we have lots, we have hundreds of people that are out there, I call it the front lines, that are out there to take care of survivors. And that's from the casualty assistance officer to a long-term case manager. There may be a chaplain, our nonprofit organizations that we partner with, just a myriad of things. I can't even list them. There's, there's so many, but so it's not just like one person. And what our office is, what we want to do is to provide those resources and different services that can help them. 
I mean, it's even products. So for example, we have apps, we do mill life learning courses, uh, just a myriad of items that we, we try to help those on the front line and then to also help the survivor directly. Dr. Moon, I'm going to ask you to get a little introspective as well and tell me about how data is being used in the Defense Suicide Prevention Office and what kind of tools you all have at your disposal um, to try and, and prevent suicides before they occur. Uh, another great question. Thank you, Eric. Data is at the crux of much of what we do. What we really focus on in the Defense Suicide Prevention Office is what we call a comprehensive public health approach. And where that really starts is with data, understanding uh, rates and trends and understanding uh, the the information that we gathered from who are experiencing these these incidents and, and not just those who are dying by suicide, but also those who are impacted. And so, so much of what we do is in the interest of gathering that information and then turning it into something meaningful. And so we attempt to use our data to inform initiatives, to in- inform pilots, uh, to inform where we should be directing resources. Um, and on top of that, then doing some intense program evaluation to make sure what we're doing is un- effective. So on the front end, gathering data and understanding what the population is like that we're working with, and on the back end, making sure that what we do uh, is making sense and is being effective. From my standpoint, I think what I would add is one of the biggest barriers to so much of what we do in suicide prevention is stigma. And what we really hope to do with the provision of these courses is to break down some of that stigma and help people understand not only um, how they can think about suicide and the experience of suicide for themselves, but how they can better interact with their community. Again, making connections and staying connected is is extremely important as a coping mechanism, as a curative factor, and um, experiencing the loss of of death by suicide can have um, impacts and and, and it can make us feel shameful or or broken or or leave us with so many questions that that are unanswerable that that make us almost feel more isolated. And so what we're really hoping to do is make the conversation more more common and easier and and something that survivors and people who aren't impacted can talk about in a way and connect. Lisa, anything to add? Thank you very much. Yes, I do. Um, I would also, you know, if you're not in crisis, but you do want to do the tough work of surviving a death by suicide, we also recommend coming to our platform, which is Military One Source on militaryonesource.mil, or you can even call and talk to a human at 800-342-9647. And we also mentioned about TAPS. They can set you up with their mentorship program. Um, they really know a lot about suicide. I just recently attended their suicide seminar that they host annually, and we had um, 600 family members there. And uh, TAPS can be reached at 800-959-TAPS or 8277. So I encourage you, reach out. You do not have to choose to be alone. Talk to someone who will listen and understands the complexity of suicide. Lisa Valentine is Program Manager for Casualty, Mortuary Affairs, and Military Funeral Honors for the Defense Department. You also heard from Dr. Andrew Moon, Acting Director for Research, Evaluation, and Data-slash-Surveillance for the Defense Suicide Prevention Office. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is 
guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a a number of those, too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there. 
was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, 
federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.